Hello, hello, everyone. Um, this is quite the milestone for this podcast because um, you know it's my privilege and honor to be able to welcome someone uh, of the likes of Clement, and he, you know, as we'll go through his introduction, you'll realize that he is uh, no less than a celebrity in the product management space, and um, the kind of experiences that he's that he's accomplished and the kind of teaching that he is going to share with us is going to be an incredible lesson for us um and i'm extremely extremely excited um you know and it's it's truly a privilege so clement welcome to the podcast how are you i'm doing well thanks so much for having me um you know no claims to celebrity here i'm just doing what i can to be able to help out product managers um wherever i can so again thanks so much for having me on super excited to chat yeah perfect so i'll very quickly introduce you which by no means is a small feat because it's a like when i started with kind of just researching on you there were around 27 experiences on linkedin that i had to just sift through and find the relevant one so i apologize in advance if i miss out on any but um, you know here goes nothing so you did a double bachelor's from university of berkeley in molecular and cell biology and you also in between also started doing a business administration a, a bachelor's in business administration and management so you're a double bachelor's after graduating from university you started your career as a business analyst at applied predictive technologies which is a mastercard cloud based analytics company then you moved into a formal product management role at movoto which is a tech real estate startup or it was at that time um and then you moved to blend which is a leading silicon valley startup in the consumer lending ecosystem you were working there as a principal product manager and i assume your first gig as a product management leader in a start in a company and in a startup uh and since then and since the past couple of years you've been working as a founder for your own company which is called product teacher and we'll talk a lot about that um product teacher offers services for, from workshops to career counseling and coaching for professionals from companies like Google Facebook Amazon Apple Microsoft LinkedIn Netflix Twitter Tesla PayPal what and I'm not going to go through the entire list because there's like 100 other companies here but uh, suffice to say basically you know every leading technology company has been a you know you've been you you guys have been coaching and working with every leading technology companies product managers from every leading technology companies and in between lest i forget you also authored four or more books and over 90 articles um so and i don't know if i'm kind of getting any advice you have consulting gigs that you probably also have but that is quite the resume um and sorry one last thing you were also the best product influencer finalist for product 50 which is an award ceremony for recognizing the leaders in the product management um you know kind of uh in in the product management industry uh which is hosted by amplitude which is you know i prefer mix panel but i love amplitude as well um so yeah so that's quite uh, you know that's quite an exhaustive resume um i have a question how do you manage it all yeah that's a fantastic question i think how do i put this a lot of the way that i look at my career just in general and the advice that i give to my mentees my clients is to just really focus on you know how can i create value today right? kind of what is a problem that i can fix today um where maybe someone else isn't trying to fix it yet where's the gap right if you can jump into that gap and do something there then that creates value and kind of as you create more and more value you start to get more and more opportunities to create value right people start to promote you people start to want to buy things from you people start to want to see you lead different teams etc and so i think for me the the thing that helped the most in terms of being able to make all these different career changes right and be able to rise the ranks right be able to create all of these 
articles and essays and publications, et cetera, was really focusing on how can I help someone right now? And I think one of the things that was very true for me is when I first became a product manager, um, exactly like you said, my background, I didn't have any design background. I didn't have any computer science background, right? I, I wasn't ex-biologist. And so I didn't know the first thing about building software. I didn't know what an API was. I didn't know what a database was. I just didn't know anything. And so what I really wanted to do was I really wanted to help out other people. Um, and that's why I started to you know, take the knowledge that I'd been learning on the job where I didn't get access to a lot of resources and put them into these essays, put them into these articles, put them into these books, right? Kind of as you write these books, as you write these articles, people start to say, hey, like this is really helpful, right? I'd love to see you do more of it, right? Um, and kind of as you gain that confidence, as you gain that knowledge in teaching other people, you bring what you taught to others onto the job. And so then that makes you more effective as an operator, as someone who is executing as a product management professional. And so something that I recommend to a lot of you know, current working product managers is go share your knowledge with others because that will help you to deepen your current knowledge and gives you the opportunity to stand out and to be able to deliver more value, which then lets you take on even bigger scopes, which gets you promoted. And on the flip side, right, kind of, um, even if you're not yet a product manager, ask, what are the kinds of things that people aren't solving and how could I solve them? And kind of as you demonstrate this track record of being able to fix other people's problems, you know, if you're interested in becoming a product manager, that's your job. You're supposed to fix other people's problems, even if they don't tell you what those problems are. Right? So kind of this proactive approach of let me help others um, is really what enabled me to do a lot more than I realized I'd done, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I know that, you know, the list of you know experiences and you know all of these descriptors is like very 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 long um that's really not the point kind of the overarching point is find ways to help others today and they will want to help you succeed in the future so yeah i uh, thank you so much for that insightful you know insight into how to go about sharing your knowledge and i have a and i have a I have a couple of questions related to product management education but i'll start with kind of going through your background right you started with like I said, you started your training in biology um, yeah. and you started your, and then you moved towards business management in between, but you graduated in both. Um, and then you started working as a business analyst, which a lot of the times is a prelude to starting working as a product manager. What kind of shifted your interest early on in university to move away from, you know, or not to move away, but to move into business administration? And then when you started your career, you know, what kind of ticked you to say, okay, I want to start working in the product management industry or I want to start working as a product manager. And then, you know, to starting there and now to becoming an educator and an entrepreneur yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, um, in terms of moving from biology into business, um, first and foremost. So exactly as I mentioned before, I'm all about helping other people. Um, that's just what makes me excited. That's what makes me feel motivated and happy. And I think one of the things that I was struggling with as an undergraduate is when I was just simply doing the biology major, uh, one of the things that was very frustrating for me is that I spent all of these hours in laboratories, right? kind of doing all of these dissections, um, analyzing these different cells, right? like doing all these experiments, but not really seeing the human impact. Right? I never really got to see how am I making someone else's life better right now? And the way that I thought about it is, you know, business is a really great way to share value with others as much as you can, right? Because the whole point of having a company is you're trying to serve your customers. You're trying to create something that people value so much that they want to buy from you. And so that's what got me thinking, well, maybe I should combine uh, kind of my interest in technical deep knowledge, right? So biology, right? Like being a science nerd, 
maybe I should combine that with actually talking to people, right? So like, let's pick up the business side and see where I go from there. And so that's what got me interested um, in, you know, exploring business at the same time that I was learning about biology. Um, but one of the things that wound up happening is there's not a very clear career track coming out of college with those <laughs> two majors, right? Kind of that doesn't really jive because when you, when you graduate with, let's say, you know, a biology major, you know, folks expect that you're going to be in a research laboratory, right? Or they expect that you're going to be, you know, joining some sort of, you know, um, medical company or pharmaceuticals company. And I wasn't really ready to do that. Um, but on the flip side, right, with a business major, I didn't really want to become an accountant. I didn't really want to, you know, kind of do finance. Um, I didn't want to do marketing. And so I was a little bit lost, right? I could do more business stuff. I could do more biology stuff. What am I going to do? And so that's when I decided, okay, it's actually going to be really helpful for me if I can look across lots of different companies and see the different challenges that they're facing. Because if I can do that, then maybe I'll discover that there's a particular problem that I'm super interested in diving into deeper and focusing my career there. And so when MasterCard uh, came on campus and they were saying, hey, you know, we have these you know, business consulting roles available where you're going to be kind of a mix of a management consultant as well as a business analyst. You're going to jump into each of these different really large companies, right? So for example, McDonald's, Walmart, um, Starbucks, et cetera, you're gonna dive in and you're going to help them figure out the way that their data is structured and then help them run these experiments, these A-B tests to see how can we continue to help our customers succeed more and more. I said, oh, well, that sounds really great, right? Kind of from the biology perspective, I understand statistics, right? I understand how to run an experiment because I'm an ex-scientist. And from the business side, I get to see kind of, oh, well, here's like the human impact of my work. Here's how I'm helping people be able to, you know, feed their families, right? Or be able to, you know, get clothed or be able to start their mornings, right? Kind of all of these different things that I could help businesses with. And so that's why I decided to jump into um, this initial role out of college. And kind of as I was doing that role, one of the things that was really interesting is that we were delivering this value to our customers through software, right? Basically, we had this... Um, analytics platform that was built by PhD statisticians and it was super, super powerful, right? It did all of this, um, you know, test versus control analysis. It identified all of these biases automatically. It helped you make sure that the experiment that you were running was actually truly solid. But one of the core problems that happened was that the end users of that software, right? Like within, you know, um, McDonald's, within um, Walmart, within Starbucks, they're not PhD statisticians. They're marketing analysts, they're operations analysts. And so, they didn't really understand how to use the software, right? Kind of as this, you know, business consultant, I spent about three to four hours every single day on the phone doing basically tech support. Hey, Clement, I don't know how to run this analysis. What does this error mean? Or, hey, Clement, I don't know why I can't get to the next step. What am I trying to do here? And I noticed that, you know, it wasn't just me that was working with all of these different inbound questions. It was me and a hundred other consultants across all of these different offices. And I started thinking, well, that's not particularly a good use of time right? because yes, you know, we are building client relationships by having these phone calls, by showing that we're trustworthy experts, by helping them out. But what if we could just help them succeed the first time around? Right? And so that's when I decided to start moving towards product management. And I didn't really know that it was product management at the time. It was more so I just want to make my user succeed without them being bottlenecked on calling me and hoping that I'm available to help them. And so what I did was I basically started to ask my clients, hey, when you ran into this question, what were you trying to do before? Why did you run into this question? What were you expecting instead? And I started to take these different insights and start to bring them to 
our engineers, those PhD statisticians to say, hey, this is what people were expecting and here's what they're actually getting and here's why there's a gap in between their expectations. Could we do something differently here? And over time, what we started doing was we started to create these different, you know, lightweight prototypes of what if we could do this workflow this way instead? And people found that, hey, like this is a lot easier. I'd love to actually see that be implemented. And we basically released this new set of functionality, right? That was a lot more user-friendly, that didn't rely so much on them calling us and asking for help. So that's really kind of how I got started on my journey in product management. And so when a when that real estate company um, decided to reach out, right, they said, hey, Clement, um, you know, we see that you're really great at understanding, you know, uh, A-B testing, right? You're really good at analytics. And we also know that, you know, you are good at understanding people's pains. We're trying to break into a new market right now, and we want to create a new product for that market. Can you help us with that? And so kind of that's how I decided to jump over to Movoto, um, basically to formally become a product manager. Whereas before, when I was working at APT, it was very much of this like informal role where just wanted to be able to jump into the gap and find how can we use the product to solve people's pain instead of having this very like manual process where people are having to be involved. So that's really how I got started. Um, does that answer your question? Kind of like what um, what did I not cover there? I know that was kind of like a long, uh, long explanation. No, no. I, uh, to be very honest, I think you covered everything, and it going. It, it was very. It's a very natural segue to my next question about. So often enough, like you talked about, that people don't end up deciding that they want to go into product management, right? Or at least yeah, ten years ago. Now everyone does because you know it's it's quite the fad. But I, yeah. I, I'll give you my example, right? When I started working for my my first company, when I was working, I saw the product team and I, I was working as a digital marketer. I saw the product team and I was not at all, you know, blown away by the, you know, by what they did. And so the role itself never quite appealed to me. And I was working across different silos. Um, and I thought that's all there is to product management. And then I worked for a bigger company. And then I worked for a company that was, you know, that had majority of their clientele working for, let's say, not in North America, right? Mm -hmm. That had majority of their users working in North America. And I saw the product team there and I saw the kind of difference between the two ecosystems and the two landscapes. Yeah. And I was completely blown away the kind of impact and influence the product management team had on the roadmap and the strategy of the business itself. And I was like, oh, wow, this is, this is where I want to kind of, you know, move into. This is yeah. what I want to do. Right? Because as someone who loves to be, you know, a, who likes to be a bit more generalist, um, you know, but at the same time, dig deeper into some aspects, I felt product management was something that started appealing to me and the role that I observed within that organization quite a lot. But then what happened when I started looking online for resources, I was extremely confused because a lot of product management okay. education that exists that existed still exists and a lot of people that make money out of it is that they try to make it focused on you know specifically frameworks or it's a very outcome or transactional based education which is not to say that it's not valuable but for example if you're teaching someone to how to use let's say a ticketing system or an analytics software that in itself is not product management right that may be one part of your operational role but it's not product management and then there is the other side of the industry, which is basically focused on getting you into like, you know, how, how to become or how to get into Google as a product manager, right? Sure. Which again is something that, okay, how to clear the test, how to clear the written test, how to clear the interviews. Um, 
and that in itself or at least what i've observed there are a few really good places where you can get these where you can get very valuable resources but then in others um it's basically trying to milk the user for their money uh so i want to understand from your perspective as both a founder who has a product management education company how do you teach product management right what like how do you teach product management so it's a very general question and it's a it's an open ended question but you know i'm just throwing yeah, it at you sure yeah so i think you hit on a couple of very important points there right so um one of the things that's been happening is that a lot of the free resources out there they're written very much with a sales intent in mind of we want to rank really high in search engine results right so they put in a lot of buzzwords but it doesn't really necessarily mean anything right and on the other hand it might be very transactional of we just want to be able to have you buy something and then you know get out of our way because we're trying to sell to the next person whereas what i want to do is i really want to see people succeed as product managers because i've seen firsthand the kinds of things that a product manager who's properly educated can do like they can change people's lives for the better right i think one of the things that resonated very deeply with me is you know th- this is a bit of a tangent but i want to talk through it because i think it's really important for us to consider what what are we actually setting up for when we become product managers um when i was working at blend one of the things that i was doing was i was building kind of this like loan application software right kind of this platform to help consumers and loan officers work together a lot more effectively and one weekend i got a call at 10 a.m. Saturday and i was very concerned because on the other side of that phone was a loan officer and i thought oh boy how did they get my number why are they calling me on a weekend there must be something terribly terribly wrong right i i just did not know what was in store and so i heard the other person's voice and it was hey clement um i believe you are you know one of the product managers who's working at blend right like you're the guys who give us our software and i really wanted to share something with you and i thought oh boy here it comes and said I'm pretty sure that you just saved my marriage. And I was I thought I misheard. I thought, "What? What are you talking about?" right? And I said, "Um, I know I'm calling you out of the blue, but I really wanted to tell you this because what was happening before was when we were using, you know, lots and lots of different software and lots of different processes back then. I had to stay in the office late every single night. and i had to come in on weekends because the stuff that we were using wasn't secure and so that meant that i kept missing date night with my wife i kept missing my son's soccer games and i just was drifting away from my own family and i thought oh wow like this is not going to go well but then you guys came in and now i can actually do all these loan applications on my phone like i can bring that work back securely and i can do things so much faster that i actually leave on time instead of like stay in the office till like 9 or 10 p.m. every day and so i've been able to actually reconnect with my wife right i've been able to actually be a lot more present for my son for my daughter and so i just wanted to take the time to say thank you i thought that's that's crazy that's insane right like i was able to help someone in such a deeply in such a deep way in a way that you don't get to see when you're looking at you know daily active users or like average session time or like you don't see that kind of human side of the story and our product wasn't just touching this one user we were touching tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these loan officer employees on the other side and so i say that because i want to make sure that when people decide to become product managers right it's not just about the money or it's not just about the prestige it's about actually solving other people's pain and making their lives better and so that's why when i teach product i want to make sure that i put together three different pieces together every single time i'm covering any topic right um the first point 
is always going to be the mindset, right? Kind of how are we approaching a particular problem and why are we doing so, right? So kind of key mindsets I really want to make sure every product manager knows is part one. Every time you create a product, it's all about creating value for other people so you can capture that value as a business. And kind of both sides are equally important. If you don't create value for users, then no one's going to buy your stuff. And on the flip side, if you just make people happy, but you don't capture that value in terms of money for the company, then the company's going to get out of business. And then you can't make that long-term sustainable positive impact. So you have to have both. It's always about having both, right? And then the second part is we need to be empathetic. We need to understand other people's pain, but we need to know that we can't solve all of it. We need to prioritize, right? What's the thing that really matters the most for creating that value and capturing that value as a business, right? So kind of prioritized empathy. And so kind of those are the two mindsets that I want to make sure I bring into every class that I teach, every article that I write, right? Making sure that people understand why are we doing the things that we're doing in the way that we're doing it. Then part two is bringing frameworks, right? I think something that can happen a lot is if people just tell you, hey, this is how I became a Google product manager. That's great, but that's just an individual story. How do you actually make that happen for lots and lots of other people, right? So you need to have something that is broader, right? Kind of what's a system that can work? But the reason why I say it's a framework and the reason why I don't say, you know, this is the only way to do things is because everyone comes at it differently, right? Kind of everyone has different strengths, everyone has different contexts. And so the, I think something that has gone very wrong in product is that the word framework used to mean something that was very flexible, something that you could pull together and then take apart and customize for yourself. But now a lot of people use frameworks as though they were like recipes written in stone, right? Like you can't deviate from it at all. And that's not true, right? The whole point of a framework is that you understand, okay, here's the outline. Here's the way that I could do it. And I'm going to mix it up for myself. Right? So part two is always, here are the different steps that you can take and why each of these steps is valuable. But also here are the different ways in which you can skip these steps or remove these steps or change these steps. And that way it works better for you. And then the third part, finally, is always my own personal experience, right? And so what was it that I went through? Because I think a lot of times, if you're just getting kind of like the academic, okay, this is how you calculate customer lifetime value, and this is how you calculate customer cost of acquisition, and this is how you calculate this, blah, 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 blah. It's really academic. It's really boring, right? And so you don't see how that applies to your own life. And so something I've noticed is that by talking about, okay, you might not believe that this approach works, but here's how it worked in my own life. And here's how I would have done it differently if I were in these other situations instead. Right? So kind of by combining these three pieces together of this is the mindset of why we're doing the thing that we're going to do. And then the framework, how we could do it. And then finally, the first-hand experience, what it looked like in practice, that then gives people all of the different tools that they need to actually take that knowledge and apply it to their own uh, situations and apply it to their own uh, to their own context. So that's really how I approach teaching product. It's not about, there's only one right way to do things. It's here's what's worked based on not just my experiences, but from the experiences of many other leaders, many other companies out there. Mm -hmm. And here's how you can take it to use it in your own life is really the way that I want to teach product. That's incredible to be very honest. That's such a thoughtful bottoms up, you know, first principle thinkings approach, because you're absolutely right. You know, um, I, I personally think that frameworks now are have started being as more of an outcome rather than a process or, a, you know, yeah. like I was reading, I remember reading this article um, and it was by Sequoia or one of the newsletters and it talked about how frameworks and playbooks are a way to be able to take really ambiguous and hard and complex ideas and to somehow 
place them in some kind of you know plane right in the yeah. in, in kind of some aerial plane where you can see these two different things together and it just helps you understand the context better now they use as an outcome okay as a product manager i created a framework or for for, for or i created a sort analysis right and not really why did you do that or what was the purpose of that um but thank you so much that's uh, that's so incredibly insightful um so moving on uh, there's another pitfall that we often end up talk, that that product managers and just generally there's a lot of written material about it as well is that it's within a within a company or within a sort of whether that's a small one or a big one or whether that's a bigger organization the culture matters a lot right and still because product management as a profession is something that is still growing right mm-hmm. um it's quite difficult to be able to, and it because it varies so much from industry to industry and company stage to company stage that um it's quite hard to be able to find that one fit uh you know one fit solution one fit solution for everyone so i want to understand how important is culture um you know to be able to when you're building your own product team and how do you yourself um you know foster a culture of collaboration and innovation in your team yeah great question so i think culture how to put this culture is really kind of thinking at like the group level and i think a lot of times when people start thinking about culture they think oh gosh this is something that's really really big and there's not like a lot that i could do right like i've tried you know changing the way that people work and i've tried like telling them to do things differently and it's just not working but culture is really just individual values that you then share with lots of other people and then all of that together then creates a culture right and so anytime i'm thinking about culture i always want to begin at the individual level which is going to be me first right how can i make sure that i'm bringing the right values in play based on what is the problem that we're trying to solve right and so i think something that happens a lot is when product managers enter an organization i think something that they expect is oh well the organization is obviously going to respect me is obviously going to trust me is obviously going to let me do what i say should be done because i'm the one who's making the decisions like the point of a product manager is to make decisions and that's true but on the flip side i think what happens is that because now you've got this person who's just joined the team everyone else doesn't necessarily know whether they can trust you yet or not they don't necessarily know what value you can bring and so then now you're working with all this distrust and when you say okay I want to change the culture. We're going to be agile now instead of waterfall, right? We're going to be transparent instead of um siloed, right? We're going to have all these different weekly meetings, we're going to have all these status updates or whatever. People start to freak out. They start thinking, "Okay, this person is coming in and they're moving all of our stuff," right? Like they're changing the way that we work and they didn't even take the time to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And so, something I was want to begin with, anytime that I am joining a new organization, any time that i am moving to some new part of the organization and of course this applies to all of my clients as well in terms of the advice that i give them is first take the time to understand that your teammates your colleagues they are your customers too like you need to understand that you're not there to direct them or to tell them what to do you're there to serve right like product management is all about servant leadership and so the very first thing that you need to bring to the table is you need to bring empathy right like you need to bring i'm here to help and i'm not biased against anyone i'm not biased for anyone i just want to understand what's going on and why are you doing the things that you're doing and so something that's really important is to understand what are the challenges that the engineering team is facing and why are they facing these challenges right 
what are things that they wish went better whenever they're working with product or when they're working with design or working with the rest of the business? And then when we think about our design team, well, what are the things that they're frustrated with, right? Kind of how could we make it easier for them to work with product, to work with engineering, to work with the rest of our customer-facing counterparts? Or working with sales, marketing, et cetera, we also want to go on that listening tour too, because our product serves them too. Right? If our product is not easy to sell, if it's not easy to market, if it's not easy to drive customer success or customer support, we've got a problem. And so we need to understand that. Right? And so we want to make sure that we're opening up all of these you know, two-way communications for them to be able to give us constructive criticism. Right? What are the things that didn't go well for you in the past? And why is that? Right? What are some ways in which I might be able to help? And so we want to come into the role with a lot of humility, a lot of empathy, and a lot of flexibility, right? Kind of you want to understand what is the context that we're operating in and why did it wind up this way? And then from there, that's when we can start to diagnose, okay, I see that there are these kinds of silos, or I see that there are these kinds of things that aren't working. We are now going to create this type of process, or we're going to start to create this type of, um, you know, strategy, because that's what fits the needs of all of these different customers the best. And so, one of the things that you mentioned earlier on, which is very true, resonates very deeply for me, for the clients that I serve, et cetera, is that product is contextual, right? There's no one right way to do product because every product serves a different set of customers. And every product team operates in a different organizational context. And so what's really important is to always begin with, who am I serving, right? Who are the teammates that I'm working with? And what were the things that didn't go so well for them in the past? Like, how can we start the chapter over again and find ways to actually collaborate a lot more productively together. And sure, they still won't necessarily trust you out of the gate, right? You don't have a track record with them yet because you haven't worked with them yet. But now at least they're going to give you the space to say, okay, well, at least you understood where I'm coming from. Now let's try to figure out a way to approach this problem together. Right? And kind of by doing so, you can make a lot more progress in shifting an organization from waterfall to agile. You can shift an organization a lot away from, we're gonna deliver all these features by these deadlines towards we're gonna to start to do this product discovery and understand a customer's pains and move away from deadlines and instead move towards uh, thematic roadmaps and experiments. Right? And so you really want to dive into understanding where's the organization right now, right? kind of what's its current culture, and then start to understand what are these pains and then start to shift these small solutions to pains whether those small solutions are processes or ways of working together, and then use that to then start to build up that culture. So I realized I didn't directly address the question, right, of how would I, you know, how, how do you actually go and create a culture of collaboration or create a culture of innovation? Because fundamentally, I don't believe that you should be creating, per se, these cultures. You instead want to understand the culture that you're in and then evolve it towards how do we help each other succeed? How do we help our customers succeed? How do we help the company succeed? Right? We want to start to move into these servant leadership positions instead of saying, this is the only way to do things. Does that make sense in terms of kind of how I think about building up these different ways of working um, with uh, different stakeholders and different executives? Yep, absolutely. And I think when you step in into a certain role and into, when you step in into a certain team, like you said, it's more about adapting to an understanding what culture are you a present of. I think one thing that really helps a lot is when you have a clear strategy and clear alignment over what are your objectives, right? As a product. Sure. Yeah. And are those are those objectives trackable, traceable? Can they be easily updated, right? Because from your objectives and keep you know I think this again is a very great is a great segue to our um, to my next question to you is sure. about why so there are two things. So the question is about 
how to set up an analytics strategy, right? Um, and this is two folds. One is within a team or within teams and within an organization, right? How do you set your own goals? How do product teams set, more specifically, how do product teams set their own goals, right? Um, and because a lot, I've seen a lot of people fail um, ter- miserably at this. Um, and then generally, when you're trying to set up your own analytic strategy to be able to track relevant metrics for your consumers, right? Whether your application is on, you know, the consumer space or mo- mobile space or B2B SaaS or whatever, people end up almost always inevitably tracking more and tracking the wrong metrics, right? Yeah, um, and that's, a, in my opinion right now, largely an unsolved issue. And it's not so much so about the technology. I'm sure the absence of, you know, so I'm, I, I'm absolutely certain that there exist a lot of good solutions out there, right? I personally work for an analytics company, so I can yeah. tell you that. Um, but the point is that a lot of it is about mindset as well. And so when you're setting up an analytics strategy for your own organization, how do you do it within two microcosms? One, for your customer, right? Not for your customers, but basically what are you tracking from your customers? And then from when you have that tracking data available, how do you set up your OKR strategy from that? Yeah, yeah, fantastic question and fantastic observations. And so um, the very first thing, which exactly like you said, is we need to think very carefully about the mindset with which we're approaching analytics, right? I think a lot of time people think of analytics as something that is pure, right? Or something that is, you know, absolutely objective, right? Hey, if we get this metric, then we're doing well. And if we don't get this metric, then we're doing poorly. And that's just not true. I think something that we need to keep in mind is that analytics is just a tool. It's a way for us to understand the reality of the world but it doesn't replace the reality of the world, right? And so as an example, you might see usage go up or go down, but that doesn't tell you the why. Why are people using it more or why are they using it less, right? Is it that maybe you have some other product out there that's solving the job better? Or is it that a competitor jumped in? You don't know, right? And so analytics is not the be all and end all. It's simply a tool. And I think what happens is a lot of times people think of analytics as the be all and end all rather than thinking of it as a very helpful tool, but still a flawed and incomplete lens that has to be paired with deeply understanding your customers by talking to them and deeply understanding your business executives by talking to them. So that's really kind of the core mindset first is analytics is a very powerful tool, but one that tends to be misused. And so we want to be very careful about how we're using it. So from that lens, we want to make sure that we're selecting metrics that actually matter. What do I mean by this? Many times, what people will do is they will read these different playbooks, right? Or they will see these different industry benchmarks and say, oh, well, if this is an industry benchmark, I need to do the same thing. So they'll look at, okay, what is the conversion rate? Or, okay, what is the customer lifetime value or whatever, But instead of doing it that way, kind of circling all the way back to something I mentioned very early on, every product team needs to create value for customers and then capture that value for the business. And so one of the most important metrics to track right out of the gate is What's the thing that's creating value for customers? And you don't know what's creating value for customers if you don't talk to customers. And so something that happens a lot is people will say, oh, okay, well, if they sign up, that's creating value. Is it? Right? Like just because they signed up doesn't mean that they actually found that your product solved their pain. 
And so something, as an example, um, the way that, um, you know, in, in its earlier days, the way that Netflix thought about what is a successful user is someone who didn't just watch a video, right? Not someone who just created an account, not someone who just has multiple users on a single account, right? What is the thing that actually creates value for people? It's when within Netflix, they say, here are the three, at least three different things that I want to watch in the next few weeks and then actually use it. Right? Like come back within the next week and actually look at something on this playlist, right? That's what creates value. And so the metrics that you're looking at in terms of what is actually creating customer value needs to be very nuanced. It needs to be very targeted and very specific for your specific users, their specific pains and your specific product, right? And so you want to look that from that lens instead of just, hey, how much session time did we have? How much monthly active hmm. users did we have, right? Kind of like how many times have people referred our product to other people? Like that's not what actually matters. What actually matters is what is the thing that actually created value for your users? And so as an example, in one of the essays that I've written, right, like let's say that you are working on a customer relationship management system, a CRM, right, something that tracks leads and converts prospects into customers or sign opportunities. What you don't want to do is you don't want to just say, hey, the thing that creates value is the number of times people log in. That's not what matters, right? When people log in, they don't get value from your product. They just logged in, right? And when they look at stuff, Maybe it's valuable, but you don't know that it's actually valuable, right? Okay, well, what if they create a lead within the system? Ah, well, that is something that's potentially valuable because now they're tracking something. But just because people created leads doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing stuff with it. doesn't mean that they're necessarily collaborating on it. And so what's the thing that creates value? Is it that, hey, they didn't just create a lead, but they then successfully moved this lead into the next stage within some time period? Or is it that they successfully shared this lead with a teammate? or they handed off this lead to someone else, right? So you start to see that a true metric of success when thinking about how do we solve our customer's pain, it should not just be something as simple as a single product action. It should be something more similar to a workflow that actually truly determines we have actually created unique customer value in a way that we know they're not getting anywhere else. So kind of that, that's like the first thing. And when you think about it, coming up with a metric like this is kind of persnickety, right? Like you have to do all of this customer research, you have to really dive in with customers, you, you need to iterate through all these different things. And so by doing so, you naturally have fewer metrics to track, right? Like you're not just looking at, okay, and what does all the traffic look like? And what does all the conversion look like? And what does all the session time look like? It's, this is our one North Star metric. Like this is the thing that we know actually creates value for our customers in our product. And then that's the thing that we need to focus on, right? And so everything else is naturally a distraction, right? Even if for some reason you have a lot more people log in, or fewer people log in, if they're still doing the core value generator the same amount, then it means that your product is in a, in a steady state. If they're doing the thing that creates a lot of value a lot more, then you're creating more value. If they're doing the thing a lot less, then you're losing value. And so by doing so, that gives us a very clear way to think about, okay, how are we going to experiment? What are kind of the upstream levers that we can pull to make this thing even more valuable, right? To create even more value for customers. And what are the downstream impacts that we wanna watch out for? Just because something that happens a lot is many times people kind of, what's it called? People over-optimize on a given metric and then it becomes no longer valuable. Right? So really good example. Let's take a look at, let's say Facebook, right? Kind of in the very early days of Facebook, it was super helpful if you had more friends on Facebook, right? Because the more friends that you added on Facebook, the more that you can connect with, you know, real life human beings that you actually knew and have actually really great meaningful relationships with them. 
that were enabled through this platform. Like kind of maybe you didn't regularly see your grandma who's in Taiwan, right? Or who is in you know Indonesia or whatever, because you don't get to see them often. But now you have a platform and you can talk. But then if you only optimize on the average number of connections that someone has, that starts to get very crazy very fast. You start seeing people add friends who they've never talked to before in the past. And now you start to get all this clutter, all these downstream impacts where people are getting news that doesn't actually make sense or they're sharing information that isn't actually real, right? And so then you see all of these harms that kick in. And so something that's very important is to understand, is the thing that we're, we said is gonna create value, is that still creating value if we continue to optimize it? Or should we say, hey, actually we're starting to see diminishing returns, we're starting to see negative returns, it's time to pick something else that creates more value instead. Right? And so that's kind of the way that I think about analytic strategy is we need to be very careful, not just to pick up the metrics that already exist or the metrics that other people tell us to use. We should look at the one or two key actions that actually prove we're creating value for customers and then using that as the kernel, right? How do we then improve that over time but continue to check in on customers. I right? continue to see, is this still creating value? And at some point when we start seeing, hey, we're putting in all this effort and it's no longer creating as much value as it used to, it's time to start thinking, well, is there something else that's creating value for them instead? Has Have our customers' needs evolved, right? Kind of have our product evolved? Has our market evolved? Right? So we want to use that to understand what's really kind of the core lever where we're creating as much value for customers and then capturing that value as a business. Any questions about kind of, how to consider establishing that analytic strategy and then actually bringing it to life? No, absolutely not, not, not at all, actually. I think that the idea of how your analytic strategy also evolves with your product is so profound, right? And especially the Facebook example that you talked about. So yeah. rightfully so, as a network application that primarily at that point in time, I'm assuming they would have thought, what is our source of revenue? You know, okay, we are a social net. We are a social network application. Our source of revenue is primarily going to come with, let's say, ads for now. Um, yeah. And at that point in time, I remember very clearly reading this across multiple uh, marketing case studies that the goal was that you want to be able, like, the key, the north star metric for Facebook early on. And I don't know. I think this is the early two thousands or late early twenty tens or late two thousands. But the goal was that if if a person is able to have seven or more friends within the first 12 hours or 24 hours of them signing up, that is your North Star metric. And the reason why we optimize for that is because as a social network application, the network itself needs to grow. So the more people that it starts to reach, it the growth of the network compounds, right? As, a, as does any natural ecosystem as well. And so at that point in time, you optimize for that metric because that is what meant what was right for business. But later on, when let's say you amassed a billion users, the goal no longer is to grow at the same rate, but the goal is how do you retain users or how do you make sure that they spend more and more active time? And there the quality of the content starts becoming more relevant. So how your analytic strategy evolved over different phases of your business is extremely important and you have to be acutely like you have to be aware enough to be able to kind of you know adapt to that time so exactly. yeah thank you thank you so much um all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna move from i'm gonna move away a bit from you know generally um strategies that are adapted by organizations um and you know within uh within and cultures 
a few questions that product managers tend to ask a lot or you know this is one question the burning question uh, you know right up there amongst a list of few others is that how, how technical do you need to be to be a successful product manager right and you talked about how you didn't have training in computer sciences but you had training in hard sciences right um being able to know statistics um and then being able to apply that for ab testing was extremely important um and that training was i'm i'm assuming was extremely helpful for you to be able to settle in into that technical part of product management so my question is how important is it for product managers to to be technical um or how technical do they need to be and just generally how do they upskill upskill for people that aren't that that they for people that are not technical how do they upskill themselves to be technical yeah yeah great question and yeah we we run into this question very frequently with our own readership base right with our own clients etc i think something that's really helpful is to take a second and actually look at that question itself of how do i become more technical and flip the question on its head why do we want to be more technical what is the value that you get from being more technical and i think many times people actually don't have a good answer for why should i be more technical right they might think well if i were more technical maybe i'd be more successful somehow people told me that i should be more technical right and so it'd be great if i were more technical but why right because when you think about it product managers also need to be able to work alongside customers but no one ever tells product managers be more empathetic to your customers product managers need to do negotiations and pricing and you know work with the law but no one ever says hey product manager go to law school even though you might work with lawyers and procurements and etc right you do need to work with information security you need to make sure that whatever you're building is secure but no one ever tells product managers hey like go do penetration testing right or like go learn all these things about security and so i think what happens a lot is people see that hey my engineers are really really smart my designers are really really smart and i feel really intimidated and so i just don't feel good and if i were more technical magically this would disappear that's not true um in fact many times being too technical as a product manager can actually make you a worse product manager because what happens is if you know too much about how engineering does things or how design does things you might fall for traps of oh well i know that engineers can only do this kind of stuff and so i'm not going to ask them to push farther or i'm not going to ask dumb questions which then means that we're not as innovative as we could be or you might spend too much time trying to you know micromanage the way that people do things instead of setting the appropriate targets of these are the things that we should aim at and providing the context of here's why we should do it like kind of you don't want to be the one saying we need to build an api with this specific structure with these latency times using these algorithms and these lines of code right because you're no longer a product manager at that point you're more of a you know program manager or you're more of like an engineering manager you're no longer a product manager and so something that i want to address right is the point of being technical is not so much to be technical but to help your technical counterparts design and engineering make better decisions okay well if the goal is to help make them make better decisions what are other ways that we could help them make better decisions well something that'd be really helpful is for us to understand what are the kinds of decisions that they're trying to make right and so when an engineer is trying to decide between algorithm a and algorithm b well why and it's maybe oh well algorithm a is super easy to implement but you know it is going to really harm our user base it's going to be like really slow for end users if we do this once we're past some point algorithm b super hard to code but it's going to last forever right and if you knew this trade off from engineering you could then help them with the context oh well you know 
right now we're pretty small and we don't ex expect to hit that breaking point and we need to be fast. And so the best just use like the fast and dirty one, or maybe it's, we're serving a billion users. We can't do the fast one. Even if we have deadlines, we need to just go and reset expectations of other people and do it right. Even though we need more time, I will help you get more of that time. And so it's all about understanding what are the decisions that they're trying to make and then helping them make those decisions better. Well, what are the inputs that you need from me? And the inputs that they always need from you as a product manager is two things. One, what do customers need? Because again, we're trying to create value for customers. And then two, what is it that the business needs? Because we need to capture that value as a business. And so whenever product managers say, I wish I were more technical, I say instead, you want to have more empathy to engineers. You want to have more empathy to designers, more empathy for technical counterparts to help them do their jobs better. You don't want to be them. You want to help them. You want to serve them. You want to lead them. You don't want to be them because that's not your job. And so there are some cases where this is, isn't true. Right? So if your product specifically serves technical counterparts, right? If you specifically build databases, if you specifically build APIs, you know, like let's say that you work at Stripe or you work at Plaid or Finicity, any of these companies that like the end users actually literally engineers, yes, you should be more technical because you will be able to understand their pains a lot more. Right? Like you might not understand just how bad it gets to try to optimize a database if you've never done it before. You might not understand how hard it is to build an integration if you've never done it before. But most of the time, product managers, their end users, are not engineers, right? Like many times they are, you know, day-to-day -day end users, right? Kind of, you know, your average citizen in some average country somewhere, right? Or they might be an employee or they might be a mom or they might be a dad. They're not going to be that technical. Right? And so it matters a lot less that you're technical. It matters a lot more that you know how to work with technical counterparts. And so that means part one, getting the right information from them. What are the kinds of decisions that you're trying to make and how can I make it easier for you to make the right decision? And then part two, being proactive in giving them and empowering them with that information so that, that way they're not stuck waiting for you to approve everything that they do. And so um, something that's incredibly helpful is, you know, if you're trying to figure out, you know, hey, do we use architecture A or architecture B? Or if we're trying to refactor something, if we're trying to take on this big technical project, something that's super helpful is to say, hey, you know, transparently, I'm not that technical. I just don't understand all this stuff. Can you just walk me through it in plain English? And what I want to do is I don't just want you to, you know, burn this time on me and then like have to do it again for the next product manager, like have to explain yourself over and over again. What I want to do is I want to document this for posterity. Right? Like I want to make this clear in plain English. So it's not just us that understands the problem. Our executives understand the problem. Our customers understand the problem. Like let me document this in plain English so that when we make some given choice, we can come back to this choice and make the right decision without having to wait for an engineer to stumble on the issue again later. And so by doing so, we create a lot more trust. We help people achieve a lot more that they could have done rather than if you were an engineer, right? Like I've definitely had engineers come to me before and say, hey, Clement, I'm honestly really glad that you're not, and you, know, you didn't have a computer coding background because if you did, you probably would have told me to do something this way. And because you asked me a really, what seemed like a really dumb question, but actually made us do stuff in a different way that was actually really helpful for customers, I would have never thought to do that, but because you're not an engineer, you told us to go do that. And it was actually really helpful. Right? And I thought, oh, well, that's really cool. And, you know, um, I've had engineers say, hey, Clement, I really appreciate that you are telling us these are the business priorities and here's the customer priorities. And then you're letting us make the decision of how are we going to balance between these things, how to make the trade-offs. And if we don't know, you're always there for us to ask questions and to make the right call. But you let us pick, and that's really great because like we feel like we're contributing to the company. Like it doesn't feel like you're just giving us these marching orders. Right? And so 
I have never had an engineer complain to me. I've never had a designer complain to me. Clement, you're not technical enough. Never, ever, ever in my life have I ever gotten that, even though quite literally I cannot code an app from start to finish. I just straight up cannot, right? Um, and so it's a lot less about how to become more technical. It's a lot more about how do I help technical people succeed more? And that's always going to be one, understanding the problems that they're facing and just asking them in plain English, what are the kinds of things that you wish were better, right? Kind of, do you wish that you better understood our customers? Do you wish you better understood our company? Do you wish that was easier for our products to talk to each other? Like, what's the problem that makes you stay up at night? Like, what's that problem? Right? Mm. And then part two is then giving them the tools that they need to go solve that problem without being bottlenecked on you forever. And by empowering them to become leaders in their own domains, they feel a lot more excited about working alongside you and about telling you, hey, in plain English, here's the challenge that I'm facing and I don't really know which one to do. Clement, help me pick the right path. And so that can really help to build that trust and prevent you from having to go learn Ruby on Rails or prevent you from having to learn SQL or prevent you from having to learn you know, Java and like all of this other stuff. All you have to do is ask good questions and give people the context. And that is sufficient for you 90% of the time in terms of closing that technical empathy gap. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lesson here, do not tell engineers what to do. Uh, and that, uh, and if you do, it will piss them off. Um, yeah. But no, I, th I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I completely agree that it's more about the approach and it's more about helping your technical counterpart than it is to try and do their job. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so, so my goal, to, my uh, you know, kind of a golden question for you here. Sure. What do you look for in a product manager, right? Um, in your opinion, how do the best top one percent product manager distinguish themselves with, you know, let's say the top ten percent, right? What's a really good product manager to you in terms of their attributes, right? I know a lot of it is contextual, as we've talked about in this episode. It depends which industry you're working in, what stage of the company you're working in, what product you're working in. But there must be certain, you know, first principles, um, you know, from your first principles lens that you look at, regardless of, you know, what industry, what stage of the company product manager is from, that you think is a really, really, you know, amazing product manager. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, so first, just to even talk about, like, what does it mean to be a top 10% product manager, right? It means getting past all of like the academic things that people teach or getting past all the articles and just making sure you've got the right mindsets in mind, which is again, your product needs to create value for people, right? It needs to create value for your end customers and then needs to capture that value for business. So that's core thing number one. And core thing number two is we all have limited resources and time. And so we have to prioritize, right? And so that means we need to go figure out how do we pick the most important things to go do and then know that all the other stuff we're not getting to right so it's prioritization and so generally speaking if you have those two pieces in mind you will naturally be more like a top 10 percent pm and a lot less kind of than kind of the median pm because something that happens a lot with kind of the median product manager is that what can happen is either they forget that their product needs to serve a business and so they focus too much on making users happy and not enough on capturing value for the business or they focus way too much on trying to capture money for the business and they forget that we need to go solve customer pain. Right? So just even having that part down is incredibly important. But then when we start talking about, well, how do we get from the top 10% to the top 1%? And this kind of circles all the way back to something that we mentioned earlier on is understanding that frameworks are just tools and that tools are meant to help, not to hurt. And so if you need to dismantle the framework, do it. Right. And so 
I think when I see kind of a top 1% product manager working, they will do things in a way that makes the most sense for their customers, for their team, for the executives, even if no one told them to do it that way, right? Like they came up with a new way to do stuff and they only did it that one time because it was most appropriate that one time. Like kind of they don't overgeneralize and say, hey, just because it worked in this one instance, I'm gonna go do it again in the next instance, right? That's when things start to break down, right? And so kind of the top 1% product manager is someone who's using critical thinking to keep asking themselves, how am I doing something, right? Like how am I solving the problem? And why am I choosing this approach? And is there an approach that I could do that would solve the problem even better, right? Kind of that really demonstrates that this person truly stands out um, in terms of making sure that they're really diving into how do we create the most value that we can, again, for customers, how to capture the most value that we can for the business in a way that uses right, kind of all of our internal resources, our limited resources, limited bandwidth, and our teammates in collaboration as effectively as possible. So like, that's kind of like the, in a nutshell answer for top 1% versus top 10%, right? Kind of, there's definitely been a lot of ink spilled in the past about, you know, how, you know, there's like good product manager, bad product manager, right? Or like top 1% does you know, all these different skills and all these different trades and, you know, it does all this different stuff, but just making it super simple. The top 10% know that their product has to create value for customers, but also simultaneously cap capture that value for the business. Like that's the most important thing. And then the top 1% know that even if something used to work with them in the past, something used to work at other companies in the past, it's not always going to work. And so they're thinking through, why am I doing it this way? And is there a way that I could do it even better? And kind of using that very critical and iterative improvement lens on everything that they do, whether it's the specs that they write, whether it's the customer discovery that they do, whether it's the analytic strategy that they come up with, having this very like adaptive and growth oriented mindset is truly what has the 1% stand out and succeed in a variety of situations where maybe the top 10% might not be able to adapt to quite as quickly. So basically kind of steel man your own approach and see, okay, this is what I'm doing. What would I have done if I wasn't doing this? And kind of always being in that existential circle of, is this better or is this better, right? And you also need to be savvy enough to be able to say, you know, or to be able to make that decision that if I do think about, if I'm steel manning the approach that I am taking, um, is the approach B that I think might be better? What fa what makes it better, right? Um, and then when you think when you're taking that approach B, you're thinking about it again. You're thinking, okay, is that is there something that I can do even better? So it, it it's it is quite a challenge to be able to to it is quite a challenge to challenge yourself at all times, um, you know, to be able to improve and adapt and come up with better strategy at all times. And I think that's truly, like you said, the mark of true, like not just for product management. But for any profession that you're in, uh, how quickly are you, how how frequently are you challenging, challenging yourself and your approach? Um, and I'm sure that's something that you as a founder have found helpful for yourself as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So the other thing just uh, before wrapping out that question is um, have some self-compassion. <laughs> I think one of the things that happens when people hear this advice is keep challenging the way that you're thinking, right? And, you know, um, push yourself to the top 1%. I think many times people start to think, oh, well, if I'm not the top 1%, then I'm terrible, right? And it's like, oh, I need to question everything that I'm doing and I have an existential crisis always. And it's not that, right? Like there are days when I'm not top 1%. In fact, there are days when I'm not even top 10%. Like that's just human behavior. Like we will have natural fluctuations, right? But it's more so knowing 
that whatever decision that you made, that decision was not set in stone. There were other ways that you could have attacked that problem. And so it's good to reflect on, was that really the best way that I could have done it? And if there was a better way, I should learn about it and know where that quote unquote better way might fail me in the future if something else changes. Right? And so it's more about striving towards the top 1% and less so about it being statically, you're either in or you're out. Right? So the other thing I just pair with that is we're all human. We all make mistakes, right? So like have some self-compassion and don't push yourself if you're not there yet. It's something that can be trained a lot faster than let's say having to know how to simultaneously, you know, code and read contracts and do price negotiation and design and do all of this other stuff all at the same time. It's, it's a lot more about think through why you're doing the things that you're doing and whether there's a way to do it better and how that better way is better in some situations and not in other situations. That's really kind of the, the, the core trademark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for a product manager, context switching is so fundamental. Um, and if you don't, like, for example, if you don't have it, you definitely learn it on the job. Um, you do learn. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's, like, you know, I, we're approaching towards the end of our episode. And um, I have a, I'd be, it'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask these questions. Uh, and I don't know when we'll have the opportunity to call you next. And it's about, it kind of goes very well. I, I researched these questions before uh, ChatGPT came out. And after ChatGPT came out, um, I think, uh, you know, they, they just became all the more relevant. I, I just to kind of just recalling some numbers from the top of my head, chat GPT reached a million users in five days. Right. Um, and that's the fastest growth ever for any product, um, you know, or at least for any product that's been measured like this. So it's incredible, right? Um, we truly, like, we're entering the decade or we're entering the era where AI has truly become productized in a way that it's consumable by a very wide audience. Um, and, you know, as much or as far as I know about AI, the reinforcing algorithm or, you know, the reinforcing technology in it is just going to mean that the more data and the more consum consumption that we have of such products, the better it's going to become. Um, and, you know, if, you know, if compute and memory and storage can keep, keep up with it, you know, who knows, we might even reach generally AI pretty soon. So I, I'm not going to ask you philosophical questions about AI, uh, but I do want to ask you, in regards to product management, how do you think product management will evolve in an age of AI? Um, and how do product managers prepare themselves for it? Yeah, for sure. So I think something that, um, something that is incredibly valuable about AI is that it does pattern matching a lot faster than kind of the way that it used to work. And what do I mean by pattern matching? Let's say, you know, hey, I'm trying to look at x-rays of like broken bones as like a doctor, right? And I had to use all of these, you know, qualitative cues and like context that I learned over decades to figure out like, hey, what's the issue with this x-ray? But because a computer or an algorithm can kind of like look at all of this stuff near instantly and then figure out all of these different patterns that humans might not have known about and come up with a much more accurate diagnosis much faster, right? AI is very good at pattern matching. But what AI is not very good at is not pattern matching. And I know that that sounds very obvious, right? But a lot of product is not pattern matching. You're not trying to do more of the same stuff in the past. Many times you're trying to solve a totally new problem that did not exist before. Right? And so from that lens, as product managers, we want to delegate more and more of the pattern matching type stuff to AI and retain a lot more of the non-pattern matching stuff, a lot more of the creative stuff, or a lot more of the new stuff and that is where we're going to actually stand out as PMs. And so what do I mean by that? 
in the past, a lot of product managers spent a lot of time going through a lot of customer feedback, right? The customer feedback kind of floods in, right? Kind of, you have all of these different, you know, data dashboards, you're looking at all these things, you're trying to figure out what is the thing that people have problems with and how do we prioritize this, right? And what we're going to probably start seeing is using AI, we will see the patterns a lot faster, right? So here are kind of the key issues that different customer segments have broken out by segment or like, hey, here are these different customer segments that we could go after without you having to define what is the customer segment. So that could be very valuable. But what the AI can't tell you as a product manager is which one to prioritize from a business strategy lens. Like you just straight up won't have that, right? And so as a product manager, in terms of gathering the inputs, we're probably gonna be spending a lot less time there. But in terms of justifying the output, in terms of having the narrative of why are we doing this one thing out of the thousands of other things that the AI told us we could have done, right? that's gonna be more important. And so in terms of like input analysis, we will be spending probably less time there it's going to be a lot more valuable for us to, to say, here are the places where we're going to start taking this path. Here's why we're taking this path. And here's when, when the pattern stops working, what are we going to do in those situations? Right? So basically, when we find that, you know, hey, this customer segment that like the AI identified that we're going to go after is not as viable as we thought it was, right? well, we need to go figure out why that is. Right? Like, why did the pattern stop working? And so that's kind of how, you know, one way in which AI might change it. Um, another thing that I... I'm gonna call out is, you know, AI is not all that new. Like AI has been in place for a long time in terms of driving more personalization for customers and more effective operations for teammates, right? Like a lot of people already use uh, kind of these, you know, automatic, you know, schedulers um, when they're working with teammates of like, hey, like how do we make sure that people have like long blocks of free time to do deep work and like kind of schedule all their meetings like in these different blocks, like that's AI, right? And when we say, hey, customer, you should purchase this thing with this other thing, like that's AI too, right? And so AI is not something new or something threatening for product managers. It's something that is going to continue to, uh, what's it called? It, it will help to cover a lot more of the pattern matchy type stuff, but a lot of like the critical thing still needs to be a product manager. Like, the product manager needs to be more of an editor and less of the maker. And so like, let's say, for example, that we're looking at like a product strategy document, right? What matters more is not the presentation of the doc or the sections of the doc or the pros of the doc. The AI can help with that. What matters more is that you're picking the right narrative. Like you're the one who's editing the narrative to say, this is the thing that we care about and here's why it's urgent, et cetera. But in terms of the actual pros that connects the logic, that the AI can do. And so, yes, humans need stories and humans need, you know, executives need to read like a crisply written document so that they can go make a decision. But we're going to be spending, you know, not five days writing a product strategy doc. We'll spend one day editing one. But it matters a lot more that we know how to edit it. It matters a lot more that we can pull together the thread rather than actually making the presentation or making the document. So like that, those are some ways in which I think products are going to evolve a lot from AI in terms of kind of the day-to-day -day work, right? When we're providing more value to customers, right, we'll have a lot more out-of-the-box options for more personalization, more customer empowerment, more customer self-serve. Working with teammates, like our operation may be a lot more effective, whether it's like analyzing, you know, customer insights or identifying, you know, metrics that need improving, or whether it comes down to, you know, even just something as mundane as scheduling meetings, that will be a lot better. Um, and then, you know, for product managers themselves, right, like we'll write documents a lot faster, specs a lot faster, presentations a lot faster, right? Like we can probably come up with graphics or even like mock-ups, like, you know, wireframes a lot faster without needing to wait for design because we can just tell, right, like stable diffusion or whatever, I want you to give me a mock-up of this thing in this way. You'll know, come up with it. Um, but what matters a lot more is kind of making the calls where you're going to start breaking the pattern 
because the AI is not going to give you new patterns. It's just going to give you matched previous ones. Does that make sense in terms of kind of the way in which I think it's going to change the way that product works? It does. It does. But I have a, I, I'm going to kind of, of take course. the bad guy here and, and try to counter yeah, that. So as you should. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I think that the the question of being able to make that decision at the end of the day, the anti-pattern, you know, like you, you like you pointed out, um, is that, okay, I have two texts in front of me and I have, let's say, two options in front of me. Whether I go with one or whether with two, that prioritization can't be done with AI yet, right? Um, but do you think as a society, right, are we prepared for this technologically? And the reason I ask this is that in order to make that decision between A and B, you need to have both functional and domain expertise that you were co- that you accumulated over years. Now, if I kind of think about a college graduate that's you know in their very very let's say you know that in in their first year or in their second year and their third year, and they have access to this tool, which in a lot of ways can help them get through school pretty easily, right? Um, I'm not saying that you know we won't have there are after chat gpt especially after chat gpt was released there was a lot of noise on twitter about the ethics of it about you know that this is we have to think about you know this kind of technology that we are making accessible to everyone out there and the kind of impact that it has and are we as a society truly prepared for it um for example what kind of roles through does it impact and do we have the systems in place to be able to detect you know, whether someone is actually genuinely, whether that's someone's genuine work or whether majority of it is hacked together, right? Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, the someone who's an artist is just going to be able to use something like DALI 2 to create better art because for them, it's just another, you know, it's just another brush that they use to be able to pour in their creative, you know, they provide the creative input to and just get better outputs. I'm not denying that. But I am saying that when you make this tool and you give this tool to, you know, like let's say the the, the mass, the white public, it allows them to be able to hack things together pretty quickly. And so when someone has pretty much hacked their, you know, their, their education and, you know, some part of their career, when it comes to kind of judging or prioritizing between A and B, do you think that they'll still be as good or they'll still be effective in doing so as someone who didn't have that? As someone who didn't have that? Yeah, and, yeah, uh, great question. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so I think, um, so I want to tease apart the question in a couple of different pieces, just because I think like that will help to clarify some of the, some of the components. And so part one, um, are we as a society prepared? And the answer is just straight up no, um, because we as a society have not done a very good job of a lot of quote unquote foundational technologies. And so as an example, right, like we're not very good with electricity. Um, we are polluting a lot right? and like the earth is suffering and like that's just electricity, right? And like that's pretty quote unquote basic today, but we didn't do a very good job of it. Right? Like social media as a technology, right? Like search algorithms as a technology, there are a lot of biases locked into them, right? Like they become you know, echo chambers. We haven't done a really good job of it. And so are there a ton of flaws? Yes, right. Are there going to be a lot of problems with its adoption? Absolutely, right. I think even the internet, like we did not do a very good job of rolling out the internet in like an ethical, defensible way, right? Like there are, you know, not even just in terms of the technology from like a, 
societal perspective, but even from like a technical perspective, right? Like HTML is supposed to be documents and like we're we're building web apps out of these documents that we're not supposed to, right? Like that whole protocol is just very messed up now. And so, you know, are we ready? No, right? And we're never gonna be ready. Right? I think it's more about can we identify that there are a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of flaws, and we need to all do our best to try to mitigate the negative impact, I think is more important, right? So, you know, there's a lot of questions, right, about, hey, well, if we're analyzing kind of like all these different patterns, well, how do we give credit to the people who like came up with stuff in the first place, right? Like that's not a well-answered question. How do you prevent, you know, having more biases against underprivileged, underrepresented people? Like that's also not well done, right? So kind of just, part one, are we ready? No, absolutely not. But can we mitigate some of the impact? Yes, as long as we're thoughtful about here are the ways in which it's flawed. Here's the way where it perpetuates a lot of the inequalities in society. Like, let's just keep an eye on that. Okay. Um, and so like, that's part one. Part two is in terms of is someone using this technology going to make worse decisions than someone who did not? Right? Kind of, um, I, I want to come at this from two lens, right? Like one from a macro lens and one from a micro lens. And so from a macro lens, right? As a product manager, when we ship some product decision, that decision does not happen in a vacuum, right? Kind of when we ship something, it impacts all of our stakeholders and they can all see it. Right? And so if we pick the wrong decision, it doesn't just kind of vanish into the ether, right? Like there are consequences. We will see that, you know, from a sales perspective, the conversations are not going as well. From a marketing perspective, we are losing steam. From a customer success perspective, our customers aren't doing as well as they should be. From an upsell perspective, like we're not driving more of that incremental value, right? From an engineering and design perspective, right? Like we see that the things that we build are less scalable, right? Like we will see the impact immediately when we make the wrong call, right? And so that's just helpful from a macro perspective. And also because product managers are not just working by themselves, there are typically more than one product manager like within an organization, unless you're a very small startup. That's like a totally different thing, right? But as a PM, your product interacts with other products, right? And so someone else is going to see that like, hey, this decision seems kind of off the rails, like let's intervene. And so I'm a lot less worried about someone making the wrong decision and having it go undetected, right? It's more about knowing that you are now even more responsible for the deciding part and a lot less for like the curation part and analysis part. Like you now need to decide, you need to back it up very well and come up with plans for what's going to happen if it doesn't go well, right? Kind of that mitigating component is a lot more important, but kind of like the initial research component is a lot less so, right? So kind of that's how I think about it from a more macro perspective. And then from just like a more micro perspective, I think something that people used to say a lot, um, sorry, not people, um, to be more specific, um, all, many Greek philosophers said, hey, now that we've invented writing, people are going to use the oral tradition less. They will stop being so thoughtful about talking. They will stop being so thoughtful about thinking, and it's going to get worse. And what we can see is that that's not what happened, right? Kind of much of the time, a lot of, a lot of the most insightful writing that has ever existed is probably a lot more insightful than many of the oral traditions that it replaced, right? And so is it possible that in many circumstances, the chosen decision is worse? Of course, right? Like every human has variance, right? Like, you know, you'll have less experience if you haven't done all kind of like the, the earlier work or like the grunt work, et cetera. But I think when you are making all these decisions a lot faster, rather than simply waiting on like the customer research and feedback and waiting on the analytics, et cetera. And when you're just making decisions and making sure they have backup plans, and then you continue to see, did I do this right? Did I do this right? Did I do this right? That iteration speed will pick up a lot faster. And so I think we'll have a lot better taste a lot faster 
because we'll make decisions faster and see them do well or do poorly faster and learn from them faster, right? And so I would say, you know, for the initial college grad, right, are they probably going to screw up more? Sure, right? But a company should be built in such a way where an, a new college grad should not take down the company with their decisions, right? Like that's something that a company should just be thoughtful of when they design their systems, right? The scope of the work that they give that person should not be like that big. Um, but then we should expect that they should learn a lot faster because they're spending a lot less time kind of having to write the presentation and having to write the document and having to compile the meeting notes, right? Kind of all that happens automatically. And so they should make decisions faster. And the more decisions they make, the better they should get at it because they should be learning from more instances more quickly. So kind of that's how I see that. Um, does that answer kind of the different parts of the question that you raised? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also places a, an important responsibility on product managers and product leaders that, you know, up till now, we they had to take into consideration, they had to take into consideration different aspects, like how does my consumer think about my product? What is the business value that can be driven through this product? But now it's also going to be, and in a lot of, at a lot of times counterintuitive to a customer's interest, what is the, what are the ethics around this, right? Uh, especially if they're integrating or if they're using AI in their products, right? Uh, which I think every company is going to, like, you know, every company became a software company. Every company is going to end up becoming an AI company. Uh, but yeah, I have so many more questions, but I know that we're you have a hard stop and then we're reaching also towards the end of our time. So I'm not going to, maybe we can have a dedicated session for AI. I have a ton of questions about the different kinds of industries that are going to be disrupted in the next 10 years. You know, everything from copywriting and sales and to teaching and maybe even product management. Um, and it's, I am both scared and fascinated, um, you know, and I have so much, like there's so much of literature around different people's perspective on what the future is going to look like. And I'd love to be able to kind of just decompose and kind of, you know, uh, you know, just to, to talk through that with you. Uh, but I'm going to spare that maybe to another episode. For my final question, uh, and I asked this with or from all my guests, what are some of your favorite books? And they don't need to be about product management. Um, you know, some of them. As a rule, I started re reading less and less business books because all of the articles and video content that I consume is, you know, mostly about product management and business and whatnot. So I try to read more fiction. So what are some of your best books um, that you'd like to recommend our readers? And, um, you know, what are some of your favorite houses of content? I, ca I call them houses of content because content no longer is, you know, it's it's the format has gone right it could be podcast it could be video it could be blogs articles books whatnot so some of your favorite books and some of your favorite kind of you know con uh, what are some of the contents that you follow um, that you'd like to share with the yeah. audience yeah for sure um so yeah so you know admittedly i have kind of the same challenge around books um in that a lot of product management knowledge is evolving very very quickly and there's a lot more written about it online than like compiled into books, right? So I think a lot of the books that I look at are a lot more kind of like long lasting knowledge and a lot less so kind of like tactically, hey, here's what's new in product. So um, when I when I use this lens, right, to think about what are the things that are, are deeper and can be repeated more, kind of like what are the things that I can learn from again and again and again, versus like, hey, like here are the fountains of, you know, new knowledge that I should be drawing from. Like that's kind of how I like split up the world. And so when I think about kind of like the, the top three books that I keep reading over and over again, um, the first one is High Output Management by Andy Grove. 
Um, and that really kind of that is all about how do I help other people succeed, right? It's all about, you know, using objectives and key results. It's all about making sure that we are building for a business, but empowering the people that we work with to do their best work instead of micromanaging them, right? It's so like that book is just really, truly stellar. Um, for anyone who's managing others, collaborating with others, et cetera, like please read Hyper Output Management, super helpful because it's not about, I'm going to do more work, right? Like when you want to create more value for customers, when you want to capture more value for the business, you can't just linearly do more and more and more work because like we will run out of working hours and we'll run out of energy and like we'll stop being smart at some point if you keep overworking yourself. And so how do you empower other people to do their best jobs in a way that aligns towards customer value and business value is like incredibly difficult. And so high output management does a very good job working through these kinds of concepts, right? So very, very much recommend that by Andy Grew. Um, the second one is um, Don't Make Me Think um, by Steve Krug. And so that's very much like a UX book about how do we build experiences that actually make sense to people? And the reason why I still find that book incredibly valuable is I've become a power user, right? Like as a, as a product manager, I know how products are built. And so every time I see whatever web page, I'm like, oh, like I know why they use this template. And I know like, this is the API calls that they're doing using. And like, this is the design framework that they use and why, right? But that's not good because my end users are not always going to be that technical, right? And so it's very helpful to kind of to go all the way back and think about how, how does the average or like, how does the median person experience the web? How do they experience any product, right? It's like very, very valuable, right? So like I repeatedly come back to thinking about what are those human psychology first principles? And to remember that products serve people um, first and foremost, right? Like, yes, we're moving metrics, but those metrics cannot be moved unless we first give some, some sort of interface to people to actually work with to create that value for them. It's like, that's an incredibly valuable book. I come back to it like at least once a year. And then um, the, the last one, is just more, you know, I know that everyone's read this book, right? Um, the Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, right? It's just all about the things that he ran into trying to build and lead a startup that like went kind of through all the ups and downs. And so that's just really helpful, right? Like just seeing the kinds of things that other people experienced and knowing that you can still make imperfect decisions, but still do a darned good enough job. Like that's enough, right? And so just, you know, um, remembering that, you know, leaders are humans too. And that, you know, they're not omniscient, they're not going to always make the right call, but knowing the kinds of things that they might run into and how they're approaching those issues can be super, super helpful in terms of whether we're the leaders ourselves, whether we're trying to convince leaders about something, knowing how that leadership world works and kind of the, the tactical challenges that come up is super helpful. Right? So that's how I think about books. Um, and then just to close out the session, um, in terms of, you know, things for people to read um, in terms of like articles. So... Personally, I'm not like a video kind of guy. Like that's just not how I consume content. I just consume a lot of like written stuff. Just that's just how my brain thinks. Um, and so I read a lot of blogs, um, a lot, a lot of product blogs. And so actually, um, Product Teacher has a weekly newsletter um, where we compile like here are the three things that you should read this week. And kind of that is a helpful curation function because then you no longer have to go look at here are all the things ever that you could read. Like that's just too much, and it's like too much of a brain melt. Um, it's more so here are three things that you should consider reading, right? And like, it's not so much about we're always going to go look at the new stuff. There's a lot of stuff that was written quite literally 10 years ago now that are still very good in terms of here's how product works. Here's how technology works. Here's how design works. Here's how businesses work. But like all of these different things people forget because they're kind of looking at like, oh, what's new on the web, 
right? And so um, we try to do our best in terms of curating what are kind of three things that you ought to read this week that will help you as a product manager. Um, and so that's kind of my recommendation there. Um, so self-plug, I know, kind of selfish, but oh well. Um, and we do that because we want to make it easier for people to not try to read everything. Um, that said, um, not self-plug, right? Um, first Round Review does a really great job of diving deep into various um, business leadership functions, right? So how, how does a VP of engineering hire engineers, right? Or like, how does a designer come up with a design system? Or like, how do you, you know, grow a startup from series A to series C or whatever? Like, there are all these very tactical, very deep uh, frameworks that you learn from it. Um, so we would also really recommend First Round Review. Again, the grain of salt that I put there is what you read from First Round Review, right? As with any framework, do not say that I must do all of these steps always, right? It's more about here are some things that other people use in the past and here's why they use it this way. But what am I going to do differently? Right? Like, how am I going to apply this to my situation? Does it even make sense to apply this to my situation? Right? So kind of bringing that critical lens into anything that you read, even the articles that I write about product, right? Like you should ask critical questions. What are the things that might work for me? And what are some of the things that I just straight up think aren't going to work? And here's why I don't think it's going to work, right? Like asking those questions will make you a better PM. Um, so that's kind of how I think about kind of resources or product managers in terms of books and blogs. Yeah. All right. No, I think that's a great list. Um, and uh, hard things about hard things is also so I read I I read it around three years ago now, um, and it's still one of the best books I've ever read. And it's not so much. I love the narrative. Like generally, for example, one of my other favorite business books is um, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, and it's about like I love to be able to you know, to, it's about when they're telling these narrative based kind of you know story like when they're writing from a narrative perspective right um what i love to be or what i think of myself as like a bee in the room and i'm just kind of absorbing all of that insight and content yeah. from whatever was happening at that point in time and um, that's a, that's incredibly insightful it's it's a lot of fun to read as well because business books a lot of the times can be very dry but thank you so much yeah. clement Thank you so much. It was an absolute honor and pleasure. Like apart from all the learnings that we kind of, you know, induced in this session and me personally, I just had a lot of fun talking to you. I just had a lot of fun discussing these ideas, talking about things, going deeper, kind of steel manning things and arguments. So it was a, it, it was an absolute pleasure. Um, and I hope we have you again. Um, and thank you so much. Uh, and for our listeners, if you like this podcast, please, you know, it, it'd be a great help if you could just comment, subscribe to the subscribe to the channel, also subscribe to the weekly pod, uh, to the weekly newsletter by the product teacher. Um, and it's also important that you give us feedback because as an as someone who so product search has been there for a year, but our podcast is recently launched. And as someone who's, you know, trying to kind of gather that feedback about what our listeners would love to read. And work on it like a true product manager, putting our product manager hat and just trying to iterate on the kind of content we want to put out there. Subscribe, like, get it on your, uh, get it on, uh, I think it's uh, available uh, everywhere, including Spotify, Google Podcast, YouTube, wherever you find your podcast. Um, you know, give give us a thumbs up, give us uh, feedback, and we'll work on it. Uh, thank you so much, Clement. Clement, it was a pleasure. Yeah, had a wonderful right. time. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.